Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 22, from Psalm 22, the first 26 verses. Page 860, if you're using the Pew Bible. Thinking about the themes of bearing shame and disgrace and scorn for the name of Christ. And so Psalm 22 is, as we know, a a psalm which reminds us of the cross of Christ. Jesus um, quoted this psalm as he hung upon the cross. And so it brings us to the realization that Jesus Christ himself has borne the disgrace, the scorn, the shame. Uh, so that we might be forgiven and have salvation. And we cannot think about bearing shame and scorn and criticism uh, for the name of Christ without thinking first about our Savior. So we're going to think about that today. So let's give our attention to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, for the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning, a Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning, O my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan, encircle me. Roaring lions, tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Amen. And go to Matthew chapter 5. 
verses 38 through 42. Once again, these are the words of God, inerrant and infallible, perfect to accomplish all of his purposes. Please give your attention to its reading, Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's consider these things together, beloved people of God. Newton's third law of motion simply states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. That, of course, deals with the world of physics, but in interpersonal relationships and interactions, people tend to want to operate by the same kind of mentality. If something wrong is done to me, then the balance needs to be set right. The scales need to be evened out. That person should have something that is done unto them. Eye for eye and a tooth for a tooth. Old Testament Israel was governed by this law of retribution called the the lex talionis, which we find in other societies in the ancient Near East around around the time of Scripture. And like with other things that Jesus recognizes from the the Mosaic law and and the codes of Israel, it sounds at times cold and harsh. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You have these, these injuries kind of compounding on one another. But like the other laws that we have seen, for instance, the The divorce laws were not to be sort of liberally used and applied for any reason by men in the society. They were not to serialize their marriages and and treat women like property. You were not to use the oath and law uh, or the oath and vow laws to cleverly lie and to to sort of make yourself uh, uh, not truthful in your daily interactions. This too is something that on first glance might sound harsh, but it actually is very protective of life. It's a very good thing because what does it do? It, it limits retaliation. What is the danger with retaliation? Well, filled with anger when someone is wronged, they, they want to do something that equals things out, but the temptation is, is, of course, to do a little bit more, to do just a little bit more, something just a little bit worse, to really show someone uh, what you mean to do when you take vengeance. And so the law of retribution limits retaliation. What it does is it prevents chaos. It prevents a a downward spiral in society. And yet Jesus brings us to the fulfillment of this law. Remember he says in in verse 17, I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill. Jesus is bringing the truth of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, bringing us to the fulfillment of this law, something that is indeed deeper. It It is greater. It is more glorious than even something that is good on an earthly level, which is uh, preventing chaos. Jesus brings us right to the heart of redemption with this passage. He shows us how redemption is rooted in justice. 
that as we think about our own salvation, we're reminded that it is not unjust, that God is just to give us salvation as we look to the Son who fulfilled justice, but he did it in a way that makes our hearts stand in awe of him. He did it in a way that transforms the way that we view our own lives, the way that we view interactions with others, the way that we view being wronged, and the way that we view bearing scorn and shame for the sake of Christ. And we, all of a sudden, with our hearts renewed unto the truths of the gospel, that though you deserved a retributive slap from God, though you deserved his punishment, God bore your punishment in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bore the slap of justice to save you, to change you, to transform you. And that makes it possible for you to go forth and do likewise. The Christian, the follower of Christ, is called to something more, something deeper, something greater, something more glorious than simply defending his or her honor. Those things may be good, and there may be good things about them, but to follow Christ is to have a priority that is even higher, even higher than the advancement of your name and your reputation, and that is the glory of Christ, the glory of the one who saves us. So the first main point today is understanding Jesus' pictures that he uses here of slapping, suing, carrying, and asking. What does Jesus mean by all of those things? This passage has had quite a reach and is, is very pertinent to many discussions that have given shape to the history of Western thought, the history of the, the Christian ethical tradition. There are uh, groups, religious groups, and Christian groups in our own country that have taken this very passage as, as a bit of a cornerstone to the way that they view interpersonal, uh, interpersonal reactions uh, and the way that you react to something when it is done for you, uh, done to you, excuse me. Now, if someone does not take vows, that is generally a, a private matter. If you have a, a neighbor who says, based on the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, I don't take oaths or vows, that, that generally is going to be something that would not come between the two of you. But if someone says, I, I shape my life upon a, a very literalistic interpretation of this passage, so I'm a, I'm a complete and total pa- a pacifist. There's multiple ways that that, uh, that affects the society and the people that are, are around them. If an entire society were in the majority totally pacifist, right? Do do not resist evil at all. If something is done to you, you cannot do anything to resist that. Then that society would have no chance uh, to defend itself. There was a movie a few years ago about uh, an American hero in in the army. I think it was called Hacksaw Ridge. I didn't see it, and I'm not uh, not commending it to you. I have not seen it, but I'm familiar with the story. And it's about a young man who was a a pacifist, came from one of these um, Christian traditions that that tended to emphasize this kind of thing, don't do anything violent against anyone else. Uh, And what he wanted to do was enlist in the army and just focus on saving lives. He was going to go into the field of battle without a gun, without any weapon, and he was going to to go and carry those off who had been uh, injured and wounded in battle. It's an inspiring story, and I'm sure the, the movie was quite inspiring and in many ways beautiful. But it's important to understand that uh, that story, in, in as beautiful as it is, and as, and as wonderful and inspiring as it is, it only makes sense in the context that here is this one man who is a pacifist uh, surrounded by soldiers who are not that way. 
And so that's the reason the story is so powerful. And, and if there were an entire army that lived according to the convictions of this man, of course, it, it would not make sense. You would not have a story to tell. You need those who were around him who were operating by different convictions and going out and fighting. We must understand that this passage of Jesus is not prescribing a lifestyle of total pacifism for us, of total non-resistance to evil. It is not calling us to stop resisting every form of evil. If you see someone who is in danger at at the hands of another, for instance, uh, a child or someone who doesn't have an opportunity to defend himself or herself, as a Christian, should you do all that you can to help that person who is in immediate need? Yes, you absolutely should. You should protect life, and we must understand that. Furthermore, uh, those who have taken a literalistic approach to this passage have said Christians really can't be soldiers. They can't be police officers. They can't be civil magistrates. They can't be guards in prisons. They couldn't be an executioner taking out uh, or exacting capital punishment. So we ask, can Christians rightly be part of institutions of the state that ensure that evil is held at bay? Can Can a good Christian be a police officer? Well, yes. In the scriptures, we see Roman soldiers. We see Philippian jailers, others who join the kingdom of Christ by faith, who look to, uh, by faith, to Christ, and yet they are not called to leave their posts. They are not called to, to, to fundamentally change their vocation. The kind of evil that this passage is dealing with is particularly the evil of slander. The evil of those who seek to shame others for the name of Christ. Perhaps you noticed in Psalm 22 the way that that slander and mocking finds a a central place in the midst of that psalm. In verse 6 it says this, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Of course, as we mentioned, this was a psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. And crucifixion was a a unique form of punishment that brought together intense physical torture, but absolute public shame. It was a way to shame someone. It was a way to strip them of their humanity. And, And so it was a fitting way Uh, for God to use crucifixion for the Son of God uh, to accomplish our redemption. He not only bore great physical anguish, but he endured great shame at the hands of sinful men. Isaiah chapter 50 speaks of the Messiah uh, as one who will endure great shame and mocking. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. You can imagine in that society, an honor and shame culture, what pulling out the beard would mean. It's, a, it's a, an act of total disgrace. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. There's a particular pointing to Christ, an emphasis on shaming someone. And that is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about slapping. A slap on the cheek. He, he's not talking about the kind of physical aggression that someone's coming at you and endangering your life. It is particularly an act of shaming and disgracing someone. To be struck on the right cheek, since most people in society are right-handed, that would mean that this is a, a backhanded slap. This is a slap that is particularly aimed 
at bringing disgrace and dishonor and disrespect upon someone. It was a way to attack someone's character, someone's name and reputation. That's what Jesus is talking about when he speaks about the striking on the cheek. And we think in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, how at the forefront of Jesus' teaching is particularly bearing scorn for the kingdom, particularly bearing scorn for the name of Jesus. We think back to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this passage is not calling us to not resist all kinds of evil. Christians are to be involved in society. They can be involved in institutions of the state that work to keep evil at bay. Once again, Jesus is bringing us to heavenly realities. And he's saying that just like, just like he will be, humiliated on earth and honored in heaven. So we are to adopt that kind of mentality, to walk through this earth, bearing the name of Christ, being willing to be humiliated on earth knowing that great is your reward in heaven when you bear scorn for the name of Jesus Christ. So it's important just to mention that this is not a passage that you can just liberally and generally apply all the way across the board. It's important to keep in mind the context of bearing shame as you bear the name of Jesus Christ. This isn't a command for Christians to stop, for instance, to stop fighting for Christian liberty in the court system, which is always an active uh, kind of battle that's going on in our society. Back then, going to court and suing for the tunic or the cloak was a very personal kind of battle. And it particularly was aimed at scorning and shaming someone. Now, if something gets to the Supreme Court in our country, we know it's no longer about defendant and plaintiff. This is about society itself. And the question of rights and what our rights are, I think Christians are wise and correct and on good ground when they go to the court system to defend their rights to freely exercise their religion. What Jesus is getting here to here is a matter of the heart when someone is seeking to shame us. The same is true for this issue of suing, being sued for your tunic or the cloak or your cloak. This is where we get the expression, you're wanting to take the, the shirt off my back. In that society, you could sue someone for their tunic, and for their cloak. The tunic was the, the undergarment. It was a, a shirt made of softer material. It was breathable. It was a luxury. It was something that not everyone had. And so if you sued someone for their tunic because you felt that you had been wronged and you wanted to even out the scales... It was a way of of kind of directly attacking them. This would have been a a custom-made article of clothing. Would have been, like today, suing someone uh, for something that is especially valuable to them. A custom-built car or something else uh, like that. that. Something that was especially made for you. And you treasure this thing. It was a way to go after their honor. The further step would be to sue someone for their cloak. Now, if a court determined that not only does someone have to give their tunic, they have to give their cloak, that operated a little bit differently because the cloak was was an article of necessity. This was something that prevented someone from freezing in in the desert climate, which can be very hot during the day and extremely cold at night. 
So the first owner of the cloak, if they lost it in a lawsuit, they would have to go to that person day after day to retrieve that cloak. It wasn't something that the other person kept perpetually. They had to give it back so as to preserve life so that they would not freeze. But you see how that would be a very, a very shaming, a very disgraceful thing to have to go through day after day after day. I remember, uh, I think in, in high school, we watched a, a movie depicting, a, dramatically depicting uh, someone who had killed someone else in a drunk driving accident. And for the next 18 years, once a week, he had to write a check for one dollar to the family uh, who lost a, a daughter, a teenage daughter, I believe. And every, every, once a week, he had to write that check, one dollar, for the next 18 years. You can see how every week he would have been reminded of the disgrace, the shame that he was bearing. Uh, would, would have been similar here. Carrying things also worked this way. This was something that had developed through different dynastic uh, kingdoms. The Persians quickly figured out that with all these people scattered throughout the world that are subservient to you, you should be able to, to use their possessions. So if someone is going on a long journey for the kingdom, then you should be able to just go to a random person and say, hey, I need your donkey. I need your camel. Uh, I'm going to use it. And then they would just be able to, to take that and use it as long as they wanted, as long as the animal was able to to carry them or their possessions, and then they could just leave it and get a possession of someone else. By the time of the Roman kingdom, this had developed to being able to take a person, and a Roman soldier would be able to say, hey, you, Jewish man, young Jewish teenager or something uh, to that effect, carry this for me for a mile, and there would be nothing that the Jewish person could say. And you can see how this would be particularly shaming. The last example is that of giving. Jesus says, give to the one who asks you. Again, this is not generally to be applied as a command of Jesus, that every time someone asks you for something, you are compelled to give it. There are some people who take this to be that way. If you look just after this passage, Jesus is talking about loving your enemies. And so this is being asked, this is being um, requested for help by an enemy. It's a test of the old adage, the tables have turned. Imagine that someone has treated you terribly at work. Someone has insulted you, put you down for years, treats you like you're nothing. Perhaps it has something to do with you being a Christian. But then that person falls on hard times. And it comes to a point where this person actually works up the gall to ask you for help. What is the flesh going to say in that kind of an instance? It's going to cry out, this is your chance to even the scales. This is your chance to remind this person, to show this person how terrible it was. All that they said to you for all of those years. All that they did to you for all of those years. It's your chance to get even. But to followers of Christ, there is another way. And that's what he calls us to. And that's what we'll focus on for the remainder of our time. Jesus calls us to put the glory of Christ above the honor of your own name, above seeking uh, the advancement of your own reputation, which may at times be a good thing. But he calls us to put the, the glory of Christ above it on our list of priorities. We don't live particularly in an honor and shame culture, but we know what it, wants to, we know what it means to want honor. We know what it means to want to avoid shame. In many ways, we're still operating by those categories. When you describe something that happens to you as a slap in the face, we all know what that means. 
It's not necessarily talking about something that was a physical attack. This was something that attacked my character. This, you went directly after me in a personal way, and I hated it, and I want to seek retribution for it. That was a slap in the face. And all four of these things that Jesus describes are slaps in the face. Start with the literal striking on the cheek. Suing for the tunic or the cloak. An enemy asking you for help. Being told that you must carry a soldier's equipment for a mile. These are all slaps in the face. And when we are slapped in the face, what, what do we want to do? We want to even the scales. We want to set the balance right. So someone slaps you, you want to slap them back or worse. Someone sues you unjustly for your shirt and wins. They take the shirt off your back. You want to find a way to sue them for their cloak. Someone makes you carry something for them one mile. You keep it in your mind. And you say you will make them work for you when the tables turn around. An enemy falls on hard times and you take joy in seeing their life being driven into the ground. And we're tempted to think this way because there's a sense of justice in all of it. It's setting things right. And we find evidence in scripture that uh, we should think well about trying to have a good name and a good reputation. And those are good things. But Jesus calls us to something higher. But for instance, in Proverbs 22, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. In 1 Timothy 3, an elder must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Jesus is saying, this cannot be your primary posture. And think about the context of the society around him. Honor and shame. Think about our world today. What are people's primary, what is the primary posture of most people? You better not do anything that disrespects me. You better not do anything that dishonors me. You better not slap me in the face. Jesus is calling us to something higher. Jesus is calling us to show forth the glory of Christ. Seek my glory, he says. Not your own reputation primarily. Jesus confronts that which is always in our flesh, the desire to take vengeance and justice into our own hands. What do we want? We want the eyes of our enemies, don't we? We want the teeth of our enemies because we believe it will give us a sense of justice. We believe that it will protect our reputation. But above these things are to be our desire to glorify Christ. Above our desire for self-exaltation is, to, is the glory of Christ it's obvious why these things are present in society. What is in a man's heart? A desire to have his honor defended and advanced. But Jesus calls us, again, to reprioritize things. Not to throw away the idea of a good name and a good reputation. Yes, we are to live for that and to seek that in many ways. But the glory of Christ is to be higher. Jesus says, if any man would come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross and he must follow me. Self-denial. Jesus is uh, the ultimate example of the one who did not insist on his own rights. When he could have. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be exploited, a thing, a thing to be broadcast in, in the face of the scorn and the shame that he endured. When you are attacked, when you are slandered, when you are insulted for the name of Christ... Our primary desire in response must be the glory of Christ and the exaltation of his name. And we must begin to see those as opportunities to testify to the gospel of grace. It's particularly what Jesus is talking about. 
Do not let your desire to defend your reputation get in the way to testify to the gospel of grace. When you are slandered for my name. When you bear scorn and shame for the name of Jesus Christ. We are to show in our, in our lives how Christ has changed us, how he has transformed us, how he has made us new in his grace. And our entire demeanor, our entire posture towards life has changed by the realization of what he has done for us. And what has he done? What has he done? What is the, what is the strength to adopt this kind of posture? Where do, you, where do we find that? We find that in the God, the God-man, who endured the second slap of justice. We find it in the gospel itself. There's a theologian who who says this. You you think about the lex talionis, the law of retribution, the teaching of Jesus. So often we're tempted to think in in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and many people say, well, is Jesus reversing things? Is Is he unwriting the law of Moses? No, he's fulfilling. And so often we can say, when we are wronged, Uh, what we are called to do is to just have a stay of justice. Don't worry about it. But really, justice is still being done. It's being done in a redemptive way. It's being done in a way that forever will put an end to uh, the scorn, the bitterness of the person who would wrong someone else. It completely disarms them. Why? Because there are still two actions that, uh, that happen in what Jesus calls us to. Here's the way one uh, thinker puts it, one theologian. The law of retribution prescribes a second action that is proportionate to the first. We talked about that at the beginning, right? The person causing the injury should receive the same in return, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Matthew 5, 38-42 preserves the twofold action and the proportionality of the law of retribution. The difference is that his disciples themselves, the injured party, should endure the retaliatory response. Someone still bears the proportionate penalty, but it is the victim rather than the wrongdoer. Jesus is calling us to something that is radical. It is redemptive. And what right does he have? To call us to that. As his people. What right does Jesus have. To place this command upon us. To live in this way. Especially when you are bearing. Slander and shame and scorn. For the name of Jesus Christ. To bear the second slap. First look at the way that Jesus. Denied himself. Look at the way. That Jesus did not insist. Upon his rights. Look at the way in which Jesus came to this earth to endure the second slap of justice. The theologian we just quoted, he goes on to say this. Human beings, as it were, slapped God in the face through their sin. And God responded with the law of retribution, the lex talionis, not by justly slapping them back, which he could have done, But by bearing that retaliatory slap himself through Jesus, God's saving action in Jesus satisfies the claims of retributive justice once and for all. The hope of the gospel is not that it was a staying of justice. It's not that it was a thwarting of justice. It's not God writing it off. It's that in Christ, 
at the cross, justice was done. It was satisfied. It was accomplished. But on behalf of the sinner, for we, if we had received what we truly deserved, if we had received what retaliation was due to us, then God would have been justified in sending us to condemnation forever. But God, the Son, comes and endures that retaliatory slap of justice. And so he calls us to, in the strength and the realization of the glory of the gospel of grace, to go out into the world, and when you bear scorn for the name of Christ, to see it as a particular opportunity to testify to the gospel of grace, to say that you know in your heart that what is being done to you, you have done unto God, and even more so, that you slapped him in the face. And in response, what did he do? He sent his son to bear the second slap of justice for you, that you might be set right with him, that you might be forgiven, that you might be made new. And since he has done so, you are to be a transformed person. You are to be different. You are to see this opportunity to still testify to justice, but to do so in a redemptive way that disarms the person who has done this to you. To testify to the gospel of grace. Jesus Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He canceled all that was due to you by bearing the wrath of God. On the cross. God comes and accomplishes justice for you by bearing his own wrath in his son. Jesus calls us to know and to understand what that means for our lives. So in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is largely bearing shame, scorn, being mocked for the name of Christ, when those opportunities come your way, See it as an opportunity to show forth, to testify to the glory of Christ that that is more fundamental to who you are than advancing your own name and your own reputation. For in the humility of faith, you say, ultimately, before God, what, what ground do I have to stand on? What, what do I deserve? This also flows forth into the way that we are to fill our lives with a forgiving heart, a forgiving spirit. To look upon the times we have been wronged and to be ready and willing and eager even to forgive. Do not be overcome by evil, Romans 12 says. Overcome evil with good. Jesus calls us to adopt these things in many ways. We need to be mindful of how we apply these things and understand them in their context. But walking by the Spirit and looking to Christ and understanding the glory of salvation... We believe that God will grant us the wisdom to be able to know when we have an opportunity to testify to the gospel of grace. And so we thank, we thank God that at the cross, the cross at Calvary was not a thwarting of justice. What is not a staying of justice? It was an accomplishment of justice. It was a satisfaction of justice. Even though we, the sinner, even though we, the guilty, even though we, the rightly and justly condemned, are not the ones who bore that slab but who uh, rest in and share in the benefits of the one who bore it for us. Let's pray.
Oh God, we thank you for the gospel of grace. And we thank you for Christ who accomplishes our redemption. May we have humility before him as we think about all that he has done for us. And may we, in seeking to follow in his footsteps, seeking to um, obey him, may we see ways in which we can testify uh, to the glory of Christ, the one who accomplished our redemption, the one who accomplished justice. And uh, may we see ways to go forth into the world and testify to that truth as sinners forgiven and redeemed and forever made alive in Christ. We thank you in his name. Amen.